We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Okay, yes, we will be in uh, Psalm uh, 13 and 14 tonight. Um, one of the things I mentioned when we started the Psalms was how much I, I love the book of the Psalms. It, it really captures a lot of emotions. And as Christians, during our pilgrimage, we have times that things just don't make sense. And um, I think that's captured here in the psalmist um, in chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me. O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob and Israel be glad. Thank you for that, Drew. I was looking at Psalm 13, and the psalmist asked a number, a number of kind of questions here, how. And uh, other times you might see the psalmist ask the question, why? And maybe we read that and we feel a little uneasy, like, you know, should we be asking those kinds of questions? 
You know, does that seemingly doubting the Lord? But may I encourage you to maybe think a little bit differently about that and actually understand that the psalmist has a very high view of God. They're not asking that of, you know, the uh, secular um, psychologist or whatever. They're asking the only one that has the answers to those questions. Why God? Well, because you have the answers. And so perhaps that might be helpful as you read those psalms too to, to not feel like you can ever ask why. Just make sure you're directing it to the one who knows the answer to that question. So thank you, Drew, for reading those. I invite you to turn this evening to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 this evening, we continue on in our study of Ezra's record of the first return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem after upwards of 70 years in captivity. God has fulfilled his promise that we read about a few weeks ago in Jeremiah that his people would return and come to the land to rebuild the temple, to offer sacrifices once again. And at the end of chapter 3, we saw that happening. We saw that the altar had been rebuilt. The sacrificial system had been reinstituted, and the people of God were once again able to fulfill the command to offer the sacrifices as they, as they had been established in the law of Moses. We saw that there was great shouting and great joy and yet great sorrow at the same time as those who had seen the prior temple, many of them probably had. Remember we said it for some it had only been 50 years or so since the deportation. Of course, um, in, in the uh, temple uh, uh, being destroyed. And so perhaps some of the aged men and women had seen that temple in its glory. And this one was seemingly not going to have that glory. And uh, I said last time that perhaps their, their attention, was wrong, attention was wrongly directed. They were focusing too much on the material aspect rather than uh, the fact that God's uh, word was now being fulfilled, the sacrifices could happen. But at the same time, perhaps those who were giving joy or showing joy in this case, perhaps their attention wasn't necessarily 100% proper either. Perhaps they were just caught up in the moment and you know, more excited about the altar and all of that than really the ability to worship God. Perhaps their focus was on the mere materialism as well. They hadn't seen the prior temple, and they were glorying in the, in the excellency of this altar and the temple foundation. And so... All that to say, just because there's joy or just because there's sorrow doesn't mean always that one is properly motivated and the other isn't. Perhaps there's improper motives in both kinds of responses. And we ought to think carefully, too, about our motivations for things and why we gather together to worship, why we sing, how we do, why we rejoice, and, and why uh, we do what we do here in the gathering of God's people. It's not for all the rituals, not for all the glamour, uh, or the building, but it is for the glory of God and him alone. We move then on to Ezra chapter 4 this evening, and we'll look at the whole chapter, Lord willing. 
where we find more opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. If you remember back in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, it says that they built the altar, though fear had come upon them because of the people of the countries, of those countries. And I made the case that really it was not fear that motivated them, but faith. What maybe was, you know, the first response of fear immediately gave way to faith in God, that this is what God wants us to do. And if we want to see ourselves prosper in God's land, then we have to move forward in faith, not fear of those around us. And so we see there, though, opposition to at, from the very beginning. One commentator notes that nothing that is attempted for God will ever go unchallenged. Is that not true? And we see that even beginning with the rebuilding of the altar. We see it now happen again, maybe uh, days or months later, as they now begin to, uh, to build the house of God. As it records here in the first few verses of chapter 4, he says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the, remember he's the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. This evening, I want to study for our time here this evening the opposition in Israel's response, and then after that, some application for us today. I noted as the truth that we gather from this passage as a whole that this, this very fact, in opposition to the one true God, the world often uses various tactics to deter and dismay his children. Yet, God's children ought to do his will with uncompromising faith. Let me say that again. In opposition to the one true God, the world uses various tactics to deter and dismay his children. Yet, God's children ought to do his will with uncompromising faith. And I think we'll see that fleshed out in our study of this passage this evening. Although Israel's response is not necessarily the one that we, the way in we should respond, at least in part. Although at the very beginning, we do see a very uh, wonderful and excellent response of Israel's leaders. And so we'll begin by looking at this kind of first tactic that the world uses to deter and dismay his children. We see in verses 1 to 3, first, that Israel's adversaries offer to help rebuild the temple. And what seems then to be a very neighborly offer of help is sharply refused. You know, you might at first read, say, wow, that's, that's really nice, you know. You know, wouldn't you like if your neighbor came over and helped, you know, offered to help, you know, with your house project, you know, free of charge and, you know, and give you a little help there. You know, we would have appreciated that when we were working on the parsonage, you know, have the neighbors come over and offered a hand. Why, why refuse that, right? You know, so it seems like a very kind of neighborly thing for them to do. 
And why would anyone refuse such an offer to kind of expedite the process, make things move along much more quickly and efficiently, and perhaps, you know, also come into the good graces of your neighbor as you kind of, you know, do this project together? But note from the very beginning that Ezra purposely notes and qualifies them as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And I think he purposely does that from the very beginning to, to tip us to the fact, tip us off to the fact that these weren't just, you know, their friendly neighbors to the north. These were their adversaries, their enemies. And so at first glance, we may find ourselves aghast at the response of Israel's leaders if we don't take note of the fact that these were adversaries. But indeed, they were. And so, in being Israel's enemies, they posed a real and great danger to Israel's responsibility before God to be set apart from the nations around them. Note that Israel's enemies were not, you know, monotheistic. These were polytheistic people. They worshipped many gods. They had been resettled in Samaria by King Esarhaddon of Assyria. He ruled from 689 to 669. Remember, in 722, the northern nation of Israel fell uh, to Assyria. And afterwards, uh, there were people from neighboring countries who were resettled into that land to repopulate the land and to, uh, to resettle it after the northern nation of Israel had been defeated. And we find this recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. And so I'm going to turn there and read that. You're welcome to do that if you'd like, or just listen as I read along. Second Kings chapter 17, if I can get there. In verse, beginning in verse 24. It says here, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So take note then, this is the area just north of Jerusalem in Samaria, uh, what used to be the nation of Israel. The king of Assyria resettled people there. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. These weren't God-fearing people. Remember, they're coming from neighboring countries who had their own gods, their own religious practices, and they've just come to dwell in the land there. Um, It says, and then, uh, lost my place here. (laughs) 25, and it says, and so it was the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, the, the nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Interesting conclusion. I'm not sure if they were exactly correct. Uh, in that assessment, but, you know, perhaps it had some, if we can say, you know, redemptive 
you know, intent to it or outcome. Verse 29, then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Well, that's all good up until what we find in verse 29. It says, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benot, the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And the Sepharavites burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. These are not God-fearing people. They may have been taught the things of God, but they were not following the Lord. There was, at best, some kind of you know, syncretistic practice of fearing, so-called fearing the God of the Israelites, but yet also continuing in their atrocious, uh, evil, and wicked practices which they, that came with them from their place of origin. Verse 32, so they feared the Lord, <laughs> yeah, so-called feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet, here's the difference, here's the, the problem, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among them, from among whom they were carried away. Verse 34, to this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged, charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm. Him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. I know that was a long passage to read, but I think it's very important to understand here what's going on in Ezra chapter 4. These are the same people, or from the same generation of people who resettled the land. These are not God-fearing people, in any really sense, except that they make some claim to seek after Israel's God and some claim that they sacrifice to that God, yet they still have, you know, in their side pocket all of these other gods that they're worshiping, that they're, you know, offering their children up in fire to. And as uh, the author of Kings, you know, very poignantly says, they do not fear God despite what they claim because they don't worship him alone. They are not obeying his covenants. You know, these aren't Jewish proselytes who came into the Jewish community and began and said, you know, like Ruth, and says, your God is my God, meaning your God is my God alone. Rather, they continued in their rituals. And so that helps inform us when we come to Ezra chapter 4 that although that seems to be a neighborly kind of offer, this really... Uh, 
could pose a real danger to Israel, who's resettling in the land and are required by God to be a nation set apart. You know, it's probably right on their memory that, you know, if if we begin to practice like we were before, God's just going to take us right back out of the land. He's going to punish us once again. And so their their response is well-founded in the fact that they are to be a nation who worships God alone, sacrifices according to the law of Moses, keeps God's covenant commands in order to receive his blessings and to, you know, to not provoke his, his curses. So we know then that they made claims that sound good on the surface. Look at, uh, look at verse uh, 2. It says, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. Well, not exactly as they do. Otherwise, they'd be worshiping God alone. They, they also make the claim that we have sacrificed to him. Perhaps they were making sacrifices to God, to the God of the Israelites, but these sacrifices were not done in sincerity and in true worship to God. Although they said to, were said to have feared God, we also know they continued to serve their own gods, as 2 Kings chapter 17, 33 says. So whatever sacrifices they had been making for all those years were certainly not pleasing to God. They were not acceptable in his sight and lacked the proper kind of spirit toward God. They were not recognizing him as the one true living God. And that, I think that was the issue that we see later on in the passage when they kind of uh, they respond in, uh, adversely to Israel's response. Israel, Israel's leaders quickly respond disfavorably to their offer. And they say that they will not allow them to build with them. They say in verse 3, you may do nothing with us. Other translations have something like, you have no part with us. You have no part with us. Instead, we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel. Israel's leaders would not tolerate such syncretism, if I can put it that way. They would not tolerate allowing these foreign nations to take part in what they were doing and permit them to the point of perhaps even allowing them to continue to sacrifice there. It's not, maybe this is a bit of speculation, but it seems that their intentions were not simply to just rebuild the temple, but then have part in worshiping there. You know, why rebuild the temple and then just, you know, leave and, you know, not have any part with it? It seems, maybe some speculation, that not only were their intentions to help rebuild, but then also use it as a place of worship for themselves. And that would clearly defile God's temple. That would clearly be, uh, you know, syncretism at its, at its worst, to allow them to participate and use the temple as a place of worship 
it would be completely unacceptable for them to associate with them and risk the danger not only of you know defiling the temple, but also defiling the people of Israel who came to worship at the temple. You know, if it's okay to worship to the God of Israel and then go home and go to your other high place and, you know, worship to one of these other gods that Second Kings 17 talks about, you know, and the priesthood is okay with that, then, you know, as an Israelite, you know, why don't I do that then too? You know, what's wrong if I do that as well? So Israel's leaders, with great wisdom and discernment, recognized the danger that this presented for the Israelite community. In God's sight, such syncretism is not real worship. Get that. It's not real worship. As soon as other other gods, other ideologies, other false doctrines... uh, begin to coalesce or come alongside the truth of God's word. That is no longer true, pure, undefiled religion, as James talks about. That is defiled religion. It is no longer uh, the true gospel. It's no longer true worship. You know, thinking of uh, Galatians chapter 1, it's not actually a gospel at all. If we kind of, you know, fast forward to the New Testament age, you know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't true covenant worship. It was anything but. It was sin and rebellion if they were to associate or to, to begin to practice in a kind of syncretistic manner. On this basis, then, Israel's leaders exercised what I would call uncompromising faith in their reply. You have no part in us uncompromising faith and obedience to God. That's not always easy to do, is it? You know, like we kind of joked at the beginning, you know, of course we'll take any help we can get, you know, any, anything you have to offer to make things easier, you know. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself in the application, but, you know, think of today's age, in the church age here, you know, it would be much easier if we associate with those who are perhaps a little bit, you know, broader in their, you know, evangelical, you know, beliefs. You know, we could, we could gather together like many churches have or, you know, many, you know, churches have come together and created, you know, denominations and associations. And, you know, don't take me to say that all those things are completely wrong to have a denomination. But what happens is, you know, things become... The beliefs and doctrines boil down to the lowest common denominator because, you know, we got to, you know, this, you know, this church doesn't believe this and we don't want to, you know, you know, ruffle their feathers. We want to be able to associate and, you know, spread the gospel quicker and easier. And so we're going to boil down to the basic tenets. Well, those basic tenets usually no longer become, you know, the fundamental truths of the gospel. They become much less than that out of, you know, what seems to be, you know, a very good intent, you know, to, to get the gospel out. Who doesn't want that? You know, certainly we wouldn't say we don't, you know, we don't want that to happen. We do. But we can't do it in a compromising manner. We have to be faithful to the word of God. And Israel's leaders demonstrate that kind of uncompromising faith. As hard as it might be to refuse that, and as hard as it might be to reject it because, well, now, you know, now they're going to look on us disfavorably. And what's that going to, ha- you know, what's that going to cause? Well, we're going to read what it's going to cause in just a moment. 
We have to practice uncompromising faith and obedience to God's word. Despite the outcome, despite how hard it is, despite how slow the process of making disciples might seem at times, when it could seemingly go quicker if we were to, you know, join others, yet compromise in important areas. Well, moving on, we see that uh, there is an adverse effect when Israel's leaders refuse uh, the offer to help. And we see this in verse 4, that Israel's adversaries begin then to discourage and trouble them in rebuilding the temple. Verse 4, it says, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The people of the land here, notice in verse 4, are no doubt the same as those mentioned in verse 3. They're the same people who at one point, you know, seemed to be friendly, and now all of a sudden they're out to discourage them and out to trouble and deter their work. What happened? Well, the situation obviously escalated quite rapidly once Israel's adversaries learned that Israel's leaders were unwilling to let them participate in the rebuilding. Israel's uninclusive, or we might say exclusive spirit, was undoubtedly offensive to them. Does that sound familiar today? Oh, you're not going to include us? You're not being inclusive? Well, watch out then. We're out to get you. And that's, you know, that's not new. We may feel like that's new in our age today, you know, where everyone is required to be inclusive. That's happening here all the way back in Ezra chapter 4. They were upset, you know. They responded like children. You know, couldn't have they simply just walked away and said, okay, whatever. We're going to go and do our thing. You do your thing. But no, they had to get upset. They had to retaliate. They had to go on the offensive. In response then, they became hostile toward Israel in the idea of God's temple being rebuilt. And so the text tells us that they tried to discourage the people of Judah and trouble them in building. The word uh, translated discourage is an interesting word. It actually comes from what seems to be a Hebrew idiom, something like they weaken the hands of or were making slack the hands of. You know, uh, in other words, you know, they they discouraged them from doing the work. Their hands were afraid to keep working. They were deterred. They didn't want to keep going on and, and working with their hands to rebuild the temple. As uh, one commentator noted, discouragement relies on subtle weapons of suggestion and sneers, intimidation and threats. What, as we said before, was seemingly a kind offer quickly turned to sneers and to intimidation and to threats even of harm or 
at the least, um, you know, retribution if they continued to keep doing what they were doing. Their malicious intent is clear. Deter and dismay the Israelites so that they are too afraid and too discouraged to do the work of rebuilding. Unfortunately, we learn later on from verse 24 at the very end of the chapter chapter, that their tactics indeed affected the spirit of the Israelites greatly. Well, we move on then to verse 5. They only further uh, antagonize and uh, treat the Israelites with hostility, we see, not only at this time in roughly, you know, 537, maybe 536 B.C., but also all the way down to the time of Darius, king of Persia. Uh, Starting in verse 4 again, it says, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Notice kind of the escalation of the tactics which they're using. They begin by kind of using syncretism. You know, we really don't, we don't, we don't, we're not worshiping the one true God, uh, and we want to take part in this temple, and so, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to treat them kindly. We're going to try to, you know, kind of get in good with them to, uh, to worship alongside of them. And when that didn't work, what did they move to? Antagonizing them escalating the situation, threatening them, intimidating them. And then in verse 5, we see, you know, they even use a further tactic. They hire counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Israel's adversaries uh, bribed counselors, or some translations say officials, to stop Israel from rebuilding the temple. You know, not content with kind of, you know, the militia, if I can put it that way, you know, kind of the, the unorganized efforts to, to uh, stop the rebuilding. You know, when, that, when they're not content with that and it's not working like they want, you know, they move on to the next level. Well, let's get the governing officials involved. You know, let's get, you know, let's involve the politics of this in order to stop them. And that's exactly what they did. In an effort to deter Israel from rebuilding, they bribed the officials. Exactly how they bribed the officials is left unspecified, at least here in verse 5. But it may have been using some of the same methods used later during the reign of King Ahasuerus and King Artaxerxes, which we'll read about in just a moment in verses 6 to 23. Ezra informs us in verse 5 that the opposition was ongoing. Perhaps, you know, perhaps not necessarily every day of every year, but repeatedly there was opposition all the way to the time of uh, Darius, king of Persia. Throughout the reign of King Cyrus until the reign of King Darius, Israel's adversaries continually harassed them and sought to put to an end their plans. That is, uh, as the CSB translation puts it, they sought to frustrate their plans. Uh, it's an interesting word there that's used other places, like in uh, 2 Samuel 15, 34. It's 
It's also uh, used in Job. And I think in both those places, it speaks of how God frustrates the plans of his enemies so that they don't come to pass. They don't happen. Perhaps, you know, that's uh, kind of like in Psalms 13 and 14. You know, the psalmist is waiting on God to frustrate the plans of his enemies, to put them to a stop. At least one day to put them to a total stop when he judges them, if not sooner. But in this way, it's used of, a, you know, of humans trying to frustrate the plans of other humans, to bring them to a halt, to the point where they can't go on, or it's seemingly impossible to do what they want to do, what they've uh, purposed to do, in this case, rebuild the temple. And this, ha- and this had great success uh, for a while. In fact, such would be the case for 16 years. They successfully frustrated the plans of the Israelites so that it wasn't until uh, the, the, uh, the time of King Darius that the temple was finally rebuilt. Now, we move on to the next portion here, which covers verses 16 to 23. I have just kind of a, a note on these portions because reading this might uh, cause some confusion if you're not kind of aware of the timeline here and when these kings reigned and the chronologi- uh, chronology of their, of their reigning and ruling. Uh, Ezra 4, 4, 6 to 23 is somewhat of we, what we might call an excursus or, or kind of a parenthesis uh, in the storyline here. These verses detail opposition against Israel uh, rebuilding the wall during a later period of time, during the reign of King Ahasuerus, or what we might more uh, know him by as King Xerxes, as well as King Artaxerxes. King Xerxes reigned from 486 to 465. Remember, verse uh, 4 ends uh, with this being the time of King Cyrus, which, remember, there, you know, roughly, you know, this is happening in 4, um, excuse me, 537. And now Ezra is talking about King Ahasuerus, who reigns in 486, beginning in 486. So, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, what, you know, 50-plus year difference here, uh, or jump in the timeline. And then King Artaxerxes didn't reign until 464 to 423. So what's Ezra doing here? You know, it seems like he's kind of all over the place here in Ezra chapter 4. And this raises the question of why Ezra chose to record events from such a later time period during the reigns of these later kings that seemingly breaks up, and it does break up, the chronology of the book as a whole, as well as specifically chapter 4. So why does Ezra record these events here? The answer seems to be that Ezra's interest here is more thematic than chronological. What do I mean by thematic? He's focusing on a theme in chapter 4, versus simply the chronology of events. The theme that Ezra is focusing on here is opposition, the ongoing opposition against Israel's rebuilding of the temple, not merely the chronology of events as they happened. 
And so that's why Ezra, you know, and in a kind of with using an excursus, places, you know, plops it right down here in the middle of Ezra chapter 4 as a demonstration, an example of how, the, how Israel is repeatedly facing opposition. It's, you know, this isn't just a once and done thing. This is an ongoing thing for, you know, roughly, you know, 70 plus years, up to upwards of maybe a century of repeated opposition. And so Ezra is drawing upon later accounts of opposition to demonstrate that the opposition detailed in verses 1 to 4, 1 to 5, was an, a, a repeated occurrence for Israel. Maybe that, you know, for the reader, you know, kind of provokes a little bit of sympathy here, that, you know, th- this is no easy task. And so even though, as we'll read in verse 24, they stopped rebuilding, and they shouldn't have, you know, they had no break, you know. Things were difficult. They were suffering uh, antagonism and retaliation, uh, threats, and great uh, deterrence to their work. And so Israel's, we see in verses 6 to 23 that Israel's adversaries deviously, I say, incite the leaders of nations to oppose the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Remember, by verse, in verses 6 and 23, by this time period, the temple had already been rebuilt. And so at this point, when, as we read about this letter that's written, uh, they've, they've rebuilt the temple. Now they're trying to rebuild the wall. And look at, just jump ahead to verse 16. We see that. Um, it says in verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt, and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So there's no mention here of the temple because that's already been rebuilt by this time. They've moved on to you know, the next phase of rebuilding, which is you know, the, the city itself and the walls around it. And so we see here opposition to the rebuilding of the wall in the city. Look at verse 6. It says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So sometime um, around 486, there is some kind of accusation made against Judah and Jerusalem. And that accusation is brought seemingly to the attention of Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. Uh, perhaps it was a letter similar to the one recorded in verses 11 to 16. We're familiar with this king, although we know him more, perhaps better by King Xerxes, from the book of Esther. And I think it's worth noting that in the book of Esther, we read of similar reviling accusations against the Israelites who remained in Persia by a man named Haman. You know, the mistreatment wasn't just back in the land of Jerusalem. It was happening also in Persia as well. The Israelites have been slandered, reviled, and falsely accused for centuries. And that's happening today now, still. Accusations against the Israelites and the turmoil that we even see today, the wars going on. This was happening to them even back then. Now, you know, don't take me to be saying that Israel, the nation of Israel was always guiltless as if they never deserved, you know, some of the accusations, you know, as if they were never true 
or as if they never had rebelled or never acted wickedly. I'm not saying that, so don't take me to be saying that. There were many circumstances, many situations where Israel acted very wickedly at times and rebelled against the kings of Babylon and the kings of Persia. But in these instances that we see recorded here, that's not the case, at least to my knowledge. There was no rebellion rebelling happening. They had been authorized, remember, by King Cyrus to go back and rebuild this, so it was their efforts were well-grounded, authorized even, by one of the kings, at least. And so in this case, although they had acted wickedly before, the Israelites were being falsely accused of malicious intent when that certainly was not their intent, at least in this case. Now, some years later, uh, during Artaxerxes' reign, Israel experienced further harassment. The instigators of this opposition were Persian officials, uh, one named Rehum, or Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe. It says in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes also, uh, Bishlam, Mithridath, Table, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written to written in Aramaic script. That was kind of uh, the common uh, trade language at that time. And translated into the Aramaic language. Verse 8, Rehun the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes in this fashion. Now, uh, you might wonder, okay, you know, Rehum, he's called a commander here, probably has some high position of authority in the Persian court, but, you know, who is this guy, Shimshai, the scribe? You know, is he merely, you know, just the scribe who wrote the the letter? Um, I don't think that's the case, although he's given the title of scribe, and often we think of someone, you know, scribal efforts, you know, simply copying down or recording things seems that he held a much higher position than that, perhaps something like the role we have here of Secretary of State. So this wasn't just, you know, a mere scribe. And I think that's the fact because, you know, King Artaxerxes receives this letter, and it's not like it's from, you know, some nobody, some just, you know, scribe out there. It's, he takes this with, serious, with, with a note of seriousness, this is, as a, yeah, and so evident is the fact that the king regarded the matter seriously when he received it. Shimshai was providing the king with, you know, what we might call high, a high-level intelligence of regarding, you know, national security, so to speak. And so King Artaxerxes responds accordingly. And we find that letter uh, written uh, in ver- beginning in verse 11. It says, this is the copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city. Might I say that with some sarcasm, although I don't think that was their intent. And are finishing its walls and repairing its 
the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the wall is completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury, treasury will be diminished. Well, that's not good, right? You notice how they're kind of, if I can put it this way, maybe gaslighting the situation, making it sound a lot worse than actually it was. You know, this is the rebellious and evil city. They're not going to pay tax. Well, you know, we don't know that. <laughs> they may have. You know, they're not going to pay tribute or custom to the treasury. Verse 14, now because we receive, uh, receive re support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. I kind of wonder, scratch my head, were they really worried about the king's honor? I don't think so. I think they were just upset at the Israelites, and so, you know, if they can make them sound as bad as they can uh, to get them to stop, then they're going to do that, even if that means kind of, you know, kissing the king's feet, you know, coming into his favor, uh, seemingly, to make themselves look better and look, you know, at kind of like the better, the better party in this situation. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that the search may be found in the book of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which they caused this city, for which that cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. As I read this letter, you know, the seemingly false accusations all over the place, ungrounded accusations against Israel. Now, it's, it's not untrue, you know, if I can give them this much, that at times Israel was rebellious. Even to its very end, uh, King Zedekiah rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and that you know, ended, ended his reign and really ended the nation of, of Judah. But that was not always the case. Jerusalem did not always act rebellious. Certainly, they were not an evil nation in, in God's standards. You know, sometimes, yes, but not all the time. And in fact, there were times where Jerusalem had a very positive effect on the kings uh, and the nations around them, providing them with security, providing them with safe passage through the land, and, and generally just, you know, uh, as they were in God's favor, they also uh, were a blessing to the nations around them. And so, you know, it, it's like they were kind of honing, on, honing in on certain situations, yet leaving out the rest of the picture. You know, just taking the bad and leaving the good that Jerusalem has had in the past or caused in the past. Well, we see the king's response in verse 17. We have to move along here. It says in verse 17, the king sent an answer, sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings. And rebellion and sedition have been, have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. 
all true, indeed. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be rebuilt, be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. We sh- why should damage increase to the hurt of the king's, or might I say the king's pocket book? Well, uh, I kind of wonder here, you know, again, speculation or inference, whatever you want to call it, could not, you know, King Artaxerxes, or Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes simply have written to the uh, leaders of Israel and said, you know, what is your intention? Why are you rebuilding? It, seemingly, he, he wasn't aware of King Cyrus's decree. We actually know that to be the case from what we le- read later on. But he could have gone to them and asked, you know, what is your intention? You know, what is our relationship going to be like here? Instead, you know, on, on the grounds of two people as you know, high officials as they were, he responds uh, disfavorably uh, by requiring them to go back to Israel and, and, uh, or go to the Israelites and uh, require them to stop building. Verse 23, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and notice, by this, in this instance, by force of arms, made them cease. See the kind of escalation that's happening here? Verse 24, thus the work of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, it's sad. Their tactics, the various tactics that they used, did indeed prove fruitful. They discouraged them and deterred them to the point where work simply ceased to happen. I don't necessarily take that to mean that they didn't continue offering sacrifices to the Lord, but they certainly weren't uh, obeying the king's command to rebuild the temple, King Cyrus and more importantly, God's command and God's desire for his temple, you know, to be rebuilt in a place of worship. And for 16 years then, you know, kind of moving back in the scene to the time of King Cyrus, for 16 years, the temple was not rebuilt. Getting a little bit ahead of ourselves to chapter 5, what seemingly or not seemingly, what began as, uh, as um, tactics to oppose and deter and discourage them from rebuilding the temple led what, to what I believe in the hearts of the Israelites as apathy and neglect and misprioritization. What do I mean? It's easy when things become difficult to do, such as obey God and his commands, and in the face of suffering and persecution, to continue on in obedience. And what may have begun with the excuse of, you know, you know, this is difficult suffering, you know, and you know, it's too hard, God, to continue on, leads to the simple apathy, forgetting God, and misprioritization, you know, focusing on the material things of this world rather than the most important thing, because the most important thing is the hardest thing to do. And we'll read, we'll, we'll read that from the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah in chapter 5. As 
just some simple application for us this evening, although we've had some kind of dispersed throughout our time this evening. I bring these two kind of major applications. As God's children, we must exercise uncompromising faith in God, in our worship. What do I mean by that? What's some simple and quick application or fleshing that out, fleshing that out? Well, we spoke about it a little bit a moment ago about, you know, we, we have to be careful not to, in, in the name of, you know, taking the gospel out, getting ourselves involved in ecumenical activities that would be dishonoring and displeasing to God and disobedient to God's word. We cannot compromise on what God's word says clearly in the name of, you know, doing the work of God. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't let uh, someone come in here and, you know, teach false doctrine, you know, teach that Jesus isn't the Christ, teach that, you know, Jesus isn't coming again, teach uh, you know, the Trinity doesn't exist, these kind of fundamental truths. So why would we then go and, you know, why would you go then and join hands with, you know, the Muslims? Maybe, you know, or put it this way, you know, uh, join hands with, uh, with uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Join hands with any other kind of cult, Though we see a lot of churches, maybe to not that extent, but in that kind of way, so quickly join hands with others who, do, who they don't have commonality with when it comes to pure doctrine. At the same time, you know, they wouldn't allow those preachers in their church, but they'll, they'll go out outside of the building, you know, and join hands with them in, in other efforts. And we cannot, we cannot compromise in that way. We have to stand fast uncompromising in our faith and our beliefs in what we do, even if it makes it harder, even if it means that we're not as popular, even if it means, you know, that we're not having waves of unbelievers come into our church, you know, because we don't have all, you know, the kind of music and the lights and the sounds and, you know, and, you know, all love and no repentance, you know, all love and no wrath. That would certainly bring in the crowds, but it it would be a kind of compromising tactic. Maybe even to the point what we would call syncretism, allowing other doctrines to influence our practice in what we do. Secondly, as God's children, we must be ready to experience hostility and respond properly. Not only can we not compromise and you know, turn to some kind of syncretism or uh, ecumenical practices, Secondly, we must be ready to experience hostility and respond properly. For example, we must not allow slander, intimidation, false accusations to dissuade us from obeying the will of God. If this is what God has called me to do, I'm going to do it. I may suffer slander. I may suffer harassment. I may, you know, we may suffer the loss of the right of, you know, worshiping in this building, we may be kicked off of YouTube and Facebook. I may not be able to share Christ, you know, in, in, at the diag, but I am not going to allow that to stop me from obeying the will of God. I'm going to continue to worship. 
And then finally, we must not allow harassment and possible physical suffering to keep us from obeying the will of God. There may be a com- come a time where we will be persecuted physically, suffer for the sake of Christ, yet, what, yet we must continue to obey the will of God as he has called us to do in his word. uncompromising in our faith and unwilling to stop doing God's will in the face of hostility. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, as we go our way, Lord, may we learn from, in one sense, the proper response of Israel's leaders when they quickly refused out of a desire to be uncompromising in their faith and practice Lord, what a wonderful example that is. May we follow in that example. Lord, we also are warned by their response later on as we read to keep going, to not allow hostility, not allow suffering, or the possibility of suffering to keep us from doing what the will of God is. And Lord, as we have seen throughout the the church the universal church, as we've seen suffering going on now for centuries. Just like Israel faced opposition for, cent- for at least a century, and now even today, Lord, may we continue on steadfast, unmovable, unshaken in our faith and our practice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.